I'm Kurt Parker. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to have our time in the Word now. So if you've got little ones through grade four and you'd like to see them go downstairs and in an age-appropriate service, you can uh, have them go down now and bring the lights up if you would. Thank you, Alex. And uh, turn in your Bible to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, if you would. You're welcome to keep your little ones with you as well. So uh, make sure that you do as you desire. We don't have to send them downstairs. We'd love for them to stay. We are kid-friendly and relaxed, and so we're glad that uh, you could come. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, confidence in the future is our topic, uh, particularly confidence in conscience, a, a topic that is very familiar to Paul and to us as we've studied his letters. We're setting ourselves up really for a study Uh, of this next section, which is part of Paul's revealing of his heart to the church. We've noticed a significant difference between how he addressed the church in the first letter we studied and how he addresses it now. In the first uh, first time, he's really pointing out the issues and how to correct them. Now he's revealing his own heart, how he goes about the ministry that he does. He uses the word we often to bring us into uh, those things which are part of the life of a believer. He's been carried along by the Holy Spirit to help the church be confident in a number of things in chapter 5. He started with a subject of, uh, that people seem to feel least confident about, death, and showed it to be the very thing that delivers us to the very place we want to most be and transforms us into the person we want to be. He moved on from there and uh, into the confidence we can have in future judgment to come, giving us an understanding on how the Lord will evaluate our lives so that we can live in such a way that there should be plenty of opportunity to build our spiritual house with material that lasts. And, of course, it shouldn't surprise us that he continues to refer back to that very judgment, even in our next topics, because this is a very important topic for Paul. It motivated everything that he did, that future judgment, and so we're going to see that in this next section. This next section is uh, in cha- picking up in chapter 5, verse 11. Paul has moved on to a very familiar topic to us, his own conscience, and we get to learn again how to live in such a way that our conscience can be clear and we can be confident in the sum of our ministry. And so uh, we're going to again give some handholds here, things you can come away with, takeaways that can help change you. That's our desire always, of course, to read the Word, and then what does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? And then how does that apply to me? That's the way we go through uh, the Word. I encourage you as well as you're in your study of God's Word each day to do that very thing. What does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? Now, you're evaluating those words. Are they figures of speech? Are they uh, metaphors? Are they uh, are direct uh, instruction to us? Are they encouragement? Whatever they are. And how does that apply is how that Bible study is supposed to work so that you're not just kind of reading through to get through a certain chapter or you want to get to a certain point at the end of the day, but rather going through the Word so that you begin to change. And that's how the Holy Spirit would like to work through your life. So look at verse 11, if you would, and we're going to read through verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Let's stop right there. Now, we noticed this as we barely touched it last week at the end of the time together that uh, what's clear for us is Paul's motivation to do ministry. And what is it? He says, therefore, knowing what? The fear of the Lord. And the word therefore indicates that his fear is motivated by what came right before this. And that's the reality of verse 10, which is his future appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. So everything that he did 
all this whole motivation was motivated by a fear of the Lord. Uh, and that word fear we saw is the noun phobos. It's where we derive our word phobia. Uh, we noted that um, it's in its, its pure sense, that's the basis in terror, something that would prompt flight to get away. But as, as it's used to the believer, it's not that way. It's in relation to God. It's more of a reverential awe. Because we are not under condemnation, and we don't fear the day of, of, of uh, judgment as if it carried wrath with it. and so. But we do have a reverential awe, and Paul had that as well. Someday he'd stand before his master, and someday this master would review all of his life and what he'd built with. And that would come under a judgment of fire that we've noted before. And we know he's not fearful of condemnation, because all that was carried out on Christ on the cross, and he has uh, been given the righteousness of God. So he's not worried about condemnation. He is nevertheless concerned about uh, uh, his actions, let's see, forfeit commendation. And so the reward and later the casting of crowns as we uh, even sang today, so important to us uh, as we think about this future day. And it's with that awareness then that he, what, persuades men. And again, we can point out that this, is, this final day of reckoning is the major motivation for all that Paul does. And we saw that was really our first confidence in conscience principle. That's kind of how we've kind of classified these. How should confidence in death, confidence uh, as we've worked our way through, confidence in those things that, um, confidence in judgment, confidence in conscience. And so that's how we did it this time. Paul recognizes that his whole life and ministry will come under God's scrutiny. And that's what we should realize as well. Your whole life, your whole ministry is going to come under God's scrutiny someday. And so if you want to have a good conscience for that future, let your ministry be motivated then by a reverential awe of that meeting. So just kind of pattern your ministry then after Paul. So we notice that this fear of the Lord, that is Paul's motivation to maintain a good conscience and really point out his sincerity and his integrity over the course of his ministry, which we've looked at numerous times, uh, that future accountability motivates Paul to what? He says, it motivates me to, and here's where we're going to pick up today with some new stuff. It motivates me to persuade men. And as you look in a passage, you, you will notice that there seems to be key phrases and, and as we've noted many times in our studies, these key phrases are usually the key to your interpretation of the section. I think we could say with relative uh, certainty that that is the case here. And those things, that, uh, things, again, that you should look for in your study of God's Word, what are the key phrases there? Typically key verbs, action things that you're supposed to do. Those are the keys to the passage. Everything's going to refer back to that, and this is the case here. We persuade men. And again, Paul says, we... And he pulls us in, again, as he's done all through this letter. He's pulling you in, he's pulling me in. And that verb persuade is uh, the Greek verb pithomen. It's present, active, indicative. In other words, this is the reality for every believer. It's Paul's reality. He's pulling you in as well. We understand its meaning. And it's to persuade someone is to induce somebody by words to believe or have confidence in some certain thing. We understand how that works. We're persuading uh, by actions. We're persuading by words. We're persuading by modeling. We're doing all of that. And so what's he trying to convince them of? And again, the first thing that comes to mind is the gospel, right? Because Paul is an evangelist, and, and perhaps like Acts 18.4 that we just saw. Uh, let's go back here a little bit. Acts 18.4, uh, same word, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to, here it is, persuade Jews and Greeks. So in Acts 18.4, what was he trying to persuade Jews and Greeks about? He was trying to persuade them of the truth of the gospel, that Christ is the Messiah. And so 
we can we might come to this passage here in Second Corinthians five and say, okay, he's trying to persuade the gospel. Next verse tells us what he's trying to persuade them of, and that was Jesus is the Christ. Or in Acts chapter one verse three, uh, really grabs the essence of that persuasion of those who were Jesus's followers. In Acts chapter one verse three, it says, to those to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, talking about those who followed him, uh, by many convincing proofs appearing over a period of 40 days and speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. That many convincing proofs, different word, but the idea is, is that they're persuading them that what? That Jesus is the Christ and concerning the kingdom of God. But in the case of our passage, the gospel is not the issue. This epistle is not evangelistic. This epistle has to do with training those who are following Christ, those who are already believers. And so in 2 Corinthians 6.11, the context tells us that, 5.11 tells us the context that Paul is persuading the church about the importance of the coming judgment. And again, we just kind of affirm, it just kind of goes back to what Paul talked about uh, a few verses ago, which is his main motivation for living. It shouldn't surprise us. He keeps reminding us that this is true. Now, reminding of that judgment, of course, has a, has a corollary. Uh, to live in light of that issue, okay? It's not just you're reminding them of a future judgment, but not prompting uh, you to do some certain thing. So the idea there is, is that you'll have something to show built on the foundation of Christ left over after judgment. That's the point, okay? Not just, okay, remember the day of judgment is coming, but that life should be different and lived in such a way, if it is even from this point on, that you're living in such a way that you're building with Gold, silver, and costly stone, and not wood, hay, and stubble. That's the point, right? And you understand that as he refers back to that. So, And that takes us to our second confidence and conscience principle. Be sure that the ministry you have with people prepares them for that future judgment. That's part of the integrity of your ministry. Uh, whether it's counseling or children's ministries or, you know, admonishing your brother or sister in Christ, coming alongside and giving some instructions, sitting down and discipling somebody, remember that let your words reveal a genuine concern for their future appointment. Uh, you, you may be criticized for saying hard things. You may be criticized for pointing out uh, these issues in life that perhaps need to be changed, uh, for being direct with somebody and saying, listen, the, the pattern of your life, the way you're using your life up till now, you know, perhaps if you're encouraging people to get involved with ministry. You know, there's tons of people that sit in churches every day. You know, 20% of the people do, uh, you know, 80% of the work. And, uh, and uh, 80% of the people do 20% of the work. That's pretty much how it works in the church. And so we encourage people, hey, find, find a place to serve with your gifts. Well, the motivation isn't that, okay, now I can say everybody's serving. The motivation is because someday you're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to take account of everything that you have done throughout the course of your life since salvation. And that's going to add up to what? See, what have you been building with? Have you been building with gold and silver and costly stone? In other words, you used your spiritual gifts in such a way that you magnified the kingdom of God, that you pointed people to Christ, helped them come into conformity with his word, or you just wasted your time, kind of did your thing, come to church, Go do the other things in your life, which are important, no doubt, taking care of your family and all that. But listen, beloved, you're letting years go by. You're not doing anything. You're not serving. You're not plugged in. You're not, you're not witnessing to people. That day will not be a pleasant day for you. The scripture says there will be some sadness, some sorrow connected with that day, some embarrassment. And you don't want to be there, see. You want to be in a place where you can say, okay, um, the sum of my life, I pray this at this point, at least from this point on, has built on the foundation of Christ, using my spiritual gifts in such a way my motivations and my thoughts about it reveal the right attitude, okay? So let your ministry then point people and prepare people for that future judgment, whatever it is, whatever that it is that you do. 
So now the rest of verse 11 really lets them know that that's exactly what he did. He says this. He says, but we are made manifest to God. Look at verse 11, if you would. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So in other words, he he wants them to know that he's genuine. His primary focus has been to prepare them for this coming day. His integrity as a minister, he says, is intact. I didn't tickle your ears. My purpose was not to affirm you and make you feel good about yourself all the time. My purpose really was that I wanted to make sure you were prepared for that future day. And he says, my conscience is clear. I'm, I'm revealed before the Lord. And here's the deal. God keeps track of that type of genuine ministry. Regardless of what happens in, in the immediate uh, following of that type of ministry, in the lives of individuals, God keeps track of how you're going about it. Their response is not your responsibility. You're doing this ministry and pointing and using as a major motivating factor this future coming judgment. Everything that you do, everything that you teach, whether you're, you're teaching people how to evangelize, whether you're teaching people, uh, you know, basics of reading God's word and applying it, whatever it is, whatever it is you're doing, the Lord keeps track of ministry that is focused on this fact that there will be an accounting someday for how you spent your life. And that's the point he's making when he says, we are made manifest to God. He, he knows that he's had a genuine ministry. He just comes in before God and says, God's my witness. And Paul pulls you in again. We are made manifest to God. What's that mean? Well, you know, when you set the level of genuineness and integrity in ministry to this level, God keeps track of that. See, it's, it's easy to soft pedal. Okay. As a teacher, it's easy to soft pedal. You could make it a lot simpler than it is. Okay. And just kind of soft pedal it, not come up on the hard points and just avoid the things that are uncomfortable or whatever. You know, it's easy to tell the story and not make an application. We tell our Sunday school teachers from time to time on, on our yearly meeting. It's, it's just as important for you to make the application of why the Bible story is there as it is for them to know the Bible story. Kids can come through Sunday school and youth group and graduate and go to college and know every single Bible story and not be transformed. Okay. It's easy to soft pedal. It's easy to, th- you know, to not make an application. Just tell the story so they know the story of Noah. They know the story of whatever, see? And then come through there with no knowledge of application. Why is it that the Lord allowed that to be there? And what does he want us to know? See, because that's the hard part. That's the preparation part that's going to take the most of your time. See, because most of you, if you've been a believer for any length of time, you can tell all those stories without looking in the Bible pretty accurately. But can you make the application of why the story's there? And why the kid should, or, or student or adult should understand this to mean some certain thing. What does the Bible say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? So it's easy to soft pedal. It's easy to just tell the story, not make the application. It's easy to think, I don't want to say anything. It could be awkward. Especially we're talking about one-on-one. Okay, that could be awkward. I don't want to say anything. You know, I don't want to bring this up. You know, it's easy to live one way, but tell others to live another way. Okay. This is all part of the integrity and good conscience of ministry. You want to guide them to a future judgment of rejoicing, and you want to live that way too, see. So, because whatever it is that you do, keep this in mind. Paul Paul says we're made manifest to God. Really pull this in, okay? Whatever it is that you do, it is as if you are doing it right in front of the Lord. You do understand that, right? Whatever it is that you do, it is as if you're doing it right in front of the Lord. You know, and the shift here is from the building that God examines and judges according to the building material used. Okay, we just got through taking those verses in. The shift is, mark this, to how ministry is done in reminding believers under your care of that future day. That's the shift here for Paul, see. Um, Focusing on the future day, now, how are you doing ministry in such a way that they'll be thinking about that? 
See, that's the shift in these next three verses. And that's the point Paul's making here. He says, you know, God knows me. I manifest to him. He knows me. He knows my heart. He knows my ministry. He knows your ministry. You are manifest to him. It's very clear what you do, why you do it, or why you don't do it, what your private thoughts are, what you think about the whole thing, what your motivations are. We've gone through all of that, okay? So Paul says, listen, I'm made manifest to God. It's, I'm right. Everything I do is right in front of him. He knows my heart. He knows my integrity as he knows yours, okay? And, and Paul, uh, Paul is saying, you know, and what I'm concerned about is that you understand the purpose of my ministry like God knows it. That's what he says. He says, and I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. Paul says, regardless of what you may say or how you may gossip about me, my hope is that you know or will know my true motives. And that is our, our fourth uh, confidence and conscience principle. You always hope for the little victories. The movement of people in the right direction as it relates to their conduct. You labor for that end. You may not get to see that. You may not get to see them move in that direction. You may not get to see the little adjustments in attitude, thought process, all of that stuff. But your desire is for that. Your desire is that that'll resonate with them eventually. And you motivate, you're motivated by that. You're just, you may not get to see it. Some ministries are very long and dry and you do all this and, and it just doesn't seem like anybody moves very far. Okay. And this is, this is funny. This is personal. I, I haven't told many people about this. So when I first started ministry, I started youth ministry. I still love teen ministry. And I loved it because I felt like that if I really invested myself in them and, and connected with them in a relationship along with solid biblical teaching, that there was a lot of remo- room to move and that they would move. And I always said that I would never do adult ministry. I said that foolishly because I felt like there wasn't going to be a lot of movement for the effort involved. And, and I'm speaking to myself as much as I speak to you, okay? Because with students, there's less baggage and connection to the world. And they're impressed more about the joys of heaven and, and terrified more about the reality of hell. They understand the reality of judgment and what that means standing before Christ. It means something to them. It can mean adults have a lot of living and a lot of baggage. They've insulated themselves from any drastic movement in any direction, for the most part, not everybody. And so I thought I wasn't going to do it, but here I am, 25 years later in adult ministry, and, and uh, that's where the Lord wanted me. But the, here's the deal, you know, you want to you wanna labor in such a way that your desire is to see the movement of people in the right direction as it relates to their conduct, and, and that is your desi- that's your hope. See, I hope we are, he says, made manifest also in your consciences. I hope at some point this resonates with you. And, beloved, to review, that is a motive that yields building material that lasts, see? So I speak to myself as much as I speak to you. So my motive is that you'll move in that direction, that you'll begin to labor with building material that is going to last through the judgment and not just doing my job because you come and you expect me to give you a message, see? Because you wouldn't know the difference, but the Lord does. Any more than your Sunday school class will know the difference of whether you showed up and doing it because you had to do it, or you felt somebody expected you to, or it was an obligation that you felt you owed, or whatever, or you're coming because you really want to see movement on their part, because everybody can fake it, see? And it's really hard to tell the difference. So Paul has 
appeal to God as his witness, and he's done this before. Obviously, we are revealed to God. He says, I've made manifest to God our true spiritual condition. God knows. He knows perfectly. It's very clear to him, Paul says, and I'd like it to be clear to you. We're made manifest to God. God knows my sincerity. He knows my honesty. He knows my genuineness and, uh, to review. He knows my motive. He knows my private thoughts about it. He knows all those things, see. He knows whether I have integrity in my ministry or not. And although Paul has been so relentlessly and brutally maligned and misunderstood and defamed and misjudged as we've seen and we will see more, God knows his heart. He knows how Paul has spent his time. And Paul wants the church to know it too. But Paul's conscience is clear before the Lord. And when it comes down to it, see, that's all that really matters. Paul's conscience is clear. That's the motivation for those who teach and those who do ministry. Your conscience should be clear. It's not something we talk about a lot. What is the conscience and how important is it? But for Paul... It was significant. And a fully informed conscience based on the word of God dwelling richly in the believer. In other words, you know what the Lord wants you to do from the word of God. That fully informed conscience will create a point of accountability and it'll be greater than any other accountability you can have. See, Because it's amazing how good people can get at fooling all the people around them. But they can't fool their conscience. See, There are things that others cannot know and will never know And my conscience knows them full well. And you can say the same thing. And there are accusations that my conscience can make against me that no one on the face of the earth can make of me. And it's the same for you. And that's why I say that as Paul puts so much emphasis on this conscience and that his integrity of ministry is intact, you know, that's why conscience is the highest human court. A fully informed conscience, one that rests on the word of God, is informed by the word of God, can make accusations and corrections in your attitude and your, what you're doing with your life more than any other accountability. Okay? And when a man can say, I have the testimony of my conscience bearing me witness, he's appealed at the very highest level. See? Purest point of human accountability. And, and one of the big applications of a passage like this, particularly as we uh, are able to see the extent which Paul uses his conscience as proof of his integrity and sincerity, because we've seen it over and over again is for us to learn or to verify that we are living sensitively and responsively to what the conscience says, especially when we think about this future judgment. It is prompting us in the right direction. Paul's emphasis shows that this accountability is part of the foundation of spirituality. And beloved, let me, let me caution you as a footnote. If you're not daily in the word of God, your conscience isn't fully informed. Okay? Lots of people say, well, my conscience tells me I'm doing a good job. Well, what does the word of God say about that? See, I'm doing what I should do. Well, have you understood the passages we just got through talking about? About all, all, the, all the random thoughts that go through your mind and, and all the motivations for doing what you do or not doing what you do, you know, that you're actually building every minute of your day with some type of building material the Lord has provided. And everybody has the same resources. You could be building with the best materials if you want to. So you have to have a fully informed conscience based on the word of God. That's the foundation of spirituality because you can fool anybody, anybody. But you can't fool your conscience if it's informed by the word. And we as well as Paul, you know, I think illustrated for us are to listen to conscience because conscience knows what no one can know. And that very fact has so many applications personally to giving grace and forgiveness and patience and keeping a short sin list and repentance, you know, all these things are all connected to this. See, not only does it inform you about whether or not your ministry is motivated for this future judgment of people that you minister to, but it, it motivates you for all kinds of things. 
you know about yourself things no one, no one but the Lord knows, and he knows that you know, see? And I believe measures your response to others because he knows you know about this. And when we know what we know about ourselves, it makes us all the more grateful for the Lord's unconditional forgiveness. And so we respond that way, and it should make us, his followers, better reprints of him. And so these things are all things are really key to Paul's integrity and his sincerity as he dealt with his church. And, and that integrity and sincerity were defended by his conscience. And, and his hope was always then that the labor he put in would result in spiritual fruit. See, And you can hear this in other letters. Paul always was concerned about this. He, you know, he worried about the churches. He worried about what was going on. He, the time he invested and wasn't, being, wasn't going to be translated into spiritual fruit. In Galatians, he says, as you can hear it, certainly, but now that you've come to know God, and then he corrects himself, uh, or rather makes it clear to them, or rather to be known of God, or by God, so you, you've come to know God on a certain level, right, and you continue to know him better, and we'll know all through eternity more and more about the Lord. You've come to know God in the salvation sense, but rather to be known by God, so he knows you fully, and you're fully, fully uh, before him uh, as transparent. He can see every part. How is it that you turn back again to weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? So he's pointing out something, isn't he? I mean, it'd be easy for Paul to soft-pedal this and not say any of that, right? Because that's not going to win him any friends from people who have a conscience but's not being informed by the Word of God. So he says, how is it that you turn back again to worthless elemental things? What, is it, what do you mean by that? Well, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have, here it is, I have labored over you in vain. See, Paul says, I spent this time here. It's important that the fruit be bore. And it's in my mind always that we see that fruit and he be commended in their conscience. At some point, it'll resonate with them. But right now, he's fearful. So Paul says, I labored over you. I see, uh, to see you produce spiritual fruit, but you may have tried to translate that into legalism. Maybe it's just you're keeping some rules and you think that's spiritual fruit. Because legalism isn't spirituality. Spirituality is spirituality, right? Do's and don'ts don't make you spiritual. Being spiritual makes you spiritual. Fully informed conscience based on the word of God and letting that translate into what you do and what you don't do. Or how about 1 Thessalonians 3? Again, you see the exact same sense with Paul, desiring spiritual fruit, wanting his labor to be translated into a change of direction, a change of thought, a change of heart. And so he's, he's very concerned about the labor that he put in. For indeed, he says, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that you and we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. So they're right in it, and Paul understands it. He was there. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter may have tempted you, now mark this, and our labor would be in vain. See, what was Paul concerned about? Spiritual fruit. He's concerned about a change in direction. He's concerned about uh, uh, incremental moves towards a walk with the Lord that produces spiritual fruit that's going to last. See, building with materials that will still be there after the judgment. Paul says, I was concerned uh, that you might have been tempted by the tempter and our labor would be in vain. But, and here's the good news, as opposed to the Galatian church, good news is, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. What happened? They were commended in their conscience, weren't they? Paul's work and his labor resonated with them, and they began to change their direction, and it began to show in spiritual fruit. So the labor that Paul made uh, in, their, in their midst benefited the church. Why? Because it began to move away from where it was, and worship of idols and false falseness and all of that stuff and consume with material things to things that last and laying up treasure in heaven and and uh, building with things that are going to last the entire 
uh, all for eternity after the judgment still going to be there. See, crowns and things that you can give back to the Lord. So it's very important. See, obviously, I labored over you so that you could face difficulty and come out on the other side with endurance complete, knacking nothing with hope. It was, we've seen all that stuff, and that's exactly what happened. So Paul's conscience was clear regardless. Paul did what he was supposed to do, and on the Galatian side, it appeared that they hadn't moved away but had replaced the things he told them about true spirituality with things that didn't matter, see. But on the Thessalonian side, what happened? Uh, they had moved in the right direction, and he had resonated in their consciences. They understood what he had said. But that was his point of his labor, right? I want to see some change. And a motivation for what he did, I labored over you so you could face difficulty. So his conscience is clear regardless, regardless of the Galatian response, regardless of the Thessalonian response. But he was still heavily invested in both, see? And that's a lot of weight to put on something that we perhaps don't think about that often. But obviously, according to Paul, the conscience is very important and it's a very powerful thing. And remember, it's not that Paul didn't sin. And I just say this as a footnote again. It's not that Paul didn't sin. Okay, and perhaps you're thinking about, well, you know, I sin privately. I mean, is somebody going to know? I mean, is that going to affect? Well, it can, see. But it's not that Paul didn't sin. We know Paul wasn't sinless. And you and I are certainly not. But a fully informed conscience is responding correctly to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the backside of that sin. See, It's not that you're not going to sin. It's just how do you respond when that happens, see? And that's immensely important. You know, his conscience was constantly being informed and confirmed by the Word of God. That's why we say you need to be in there every day. Why? Because it show, holds up the Holy Standard. You're going to know if your attitude or the things that you're doing are wrong or right. If you're excluding something that he says to do or doing something he says not to do, and you're going to know that because every day you're in the Word of God. So it's informing you, and then you're responding correctly in repentance and confession and asking for forgiveness. And if we seek forgiveness, he offers it, right? So it's very important. Conscience constantly being informed, confirmed. And he would follow the warning systems of his conscience so he could say, you know, I have a conscience that I dealt with you in the right way. I've been preparing you for the future day of judgment and my conscience is clear. Paul said almost the same thing about this whole thing in First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. We said that years ago. But he says this, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. So it's, still, it's still there with Paul. He says, regardless of how you may perceive me, whatever you may say about me, I have a proud confidence in this, the testimony of our conscience, in that holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So in other words, we lived the way we were supposed to live so that we have a clear conscience in everything we've done. Our conscience agreed with us and it fully, it's fully informed by the word of God. And that proud confidence, those two words are actually one noun in the Greek that actually means boast. So Paul, perhaps Timothy, Silvanus, and we know Titus, uh, that's who he's pulling in there in 1 Corinthians. Those three guys, including himself, we can boast in our conscience because it's clear and we know the way that he informs his conscience and on what uh, he is to do as a minister. So we looked at all that and we understand that. We won't go back through it. But they think, uh, and, and as they think through that, as the Corinthians read this letter, it's, it's really the way they can understand his bold confidence that he is who he's supposed to be and he's done and does what he's supposed to do and it is supposed to do as a minister of the word and as an elder. So Paul says, listen, I, my conscience is clear. I can boast in the conscience. I've done among you what I was supposed to do. So same exact idea. And in particular here, warn them of future judgment. And he says, we have conducted ourselves in the world 
So again, the conscience helps us do that. This is how we've lived in the world. My conscience is clear in how I've conducted myself in this culture that surrounds the church. In other words, no double standard. I'm not saying one thing here and then going out and doing something else altogether in the world or in my business life or private life. No excuses to be conformed to the world or to love the world and the things in it. No. Nothing's going to come up to light and embarrass me or my testimony. And then the last part of verse 12, he says this, but especially toward you, he says, that's precisely what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.11. That's our passage. You know, our conscience is clear towards you. I hope that we were made manifest also in your consciences. See, we, you have been our special focus. That's what Paul says. And I think that we can see again that this conscience, this issue of integrity, has a primary position in the ministry. Again, we're moving away from what we're doing actually on a day-to-day basis, laying up treasure, to how we're going about ministry so that others are aware of that. That's our motivation for doing what we do. And we don't waste any time soft-pedaling or missing the opportunity to make the point, see, so that people's actions will be conformed. I'm not trying to make you feel better all the time when you come. Obviously, if you come here a long time, you know that, okay? But you feel better when you're all done, right? Because then you know what the Lord expects and you know he gives forgiveness and you go to him and you say, Lord, I haven't been doing this correctly and I want to change. And the Holy Spirit is there to empower that change, see? We don't want to affirm that we're just all doing what we're supposed to do every time and you feel good when you walk out of here. That's not a good way to go. And that's not accurate, see? But you can fill a church up if that's your emphasis. It's important, I think, to realize that was his point. You're our special focus I think we can see this is the, this is the deal. Integrity, conscience, integrity and conscience is the primary position, and we don't think about it that much, but Paul thought about it all the time, which should change the way we go about it. You allow your conscience to inform you. Asking the Lord, make it clear to me, what is my motivation here? What are my thoughts about this issue? How have I, how have I been living on a day-to-day basis, and what have I been building with? Those are the right questions to ask, beloved. So he's examining the underlying factors, and that's what we're supposed to do. Because I think by now... As Paul revisits this topic again, I think by now we can see uh, and we can say and should say, if there's any place where integrity and good consciences are important, it's in the church. It's in the ministry, in the life of the pastor, the servant of God, the evangelist, the spiritual teacher, the leader. Because we have to maintain integrity in order to have credibility that sets examples for everybody to follow. And yet there are many in spiritual leadership and there always have been who lack integrity. And they can't have a good conscience in ministry because they're not warning and admonishing those under their care about a coming day of judgment. They're just making sure they feel good when they leave, see? Because they are not taking what, the, what is in the word and delivering it to those under their care. Remember how we talked about the, the work of an elder and a teacher? It's to take what's in the kitchen and serve it on the table. That's under or under rower, see? Take what's in the kitchen, serve it at the table, and don't spill anything on the way. Okay, the Lord's given us exactly what we need. We take it and you deliver it, see? And so Paul, Paul is using that and there are many in ministry who don't do that. They're not taking what's, what's in the kitchen, what's in the word of God and delivering it to their people unadulterated, giving the sense of the actual passage. What are the key words and why is it important for us to understand this? And does it mean that we're supposed to do it? And if it is, yes, yes. And if we're not supposed to do it, then we're not to do it, see? So you can't have good integrity. You can't have a good conscience in ministry if you're not doing those things. So they're saying one thing, and here's the thing, and doing another. And again, not that those who minister are without sin. As we said earlier, it's just those with integrity are responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in those areas and getting those things right. See, And, and we'll look at a few examples of that from the Word of God. And frankly, um, you know, living one way and uh, saying one thing and living another way doesn't put us in very good company. I think that's the point of a, ver- a very next verse from our passage in Second Corinthians 5.12. He says this, 
He says, we are not again commending ourselves to you. We're not trying to convince you that we're great. We don't have to come to you with letters of recommendation, all that kind of stuff. Hey, you know, you need to believe us. But are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. In other words, we have a good conscience. If you think back over it and that begins to resonate with you, you're going to know we spent our time among you as we should have. You may not have liked how it was done. You may not have liked what it was said. It may have hurt your feelings from time to time. You may have gone out of here thinking the pastor was just speaking just to me. Okay, and what I did yesterday or whatever, that's what you might be thinking. But here's the deal. Um, we're not again committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. That's the whole point, see? Those who have a conscience and integrity and they're doing what the Lord wants them to do and those who are just worried about what it looks like on the outside, see? Because there's a significant difference in the ministry of those who are concerned about the motive and the quality and the focus of the ministry they do as opposed to those who only care about what's going on where people can see. I was reading in my own time of the word. It was, it was inevitable we were going to go this way because the Lord confirmed it to me over and over even before I got to the study of the passage. But I was reading my own time of the word of God this week and a portion of the Psalms that was part of my study, uh, which I, I do uh, Old Testament reading, I do New Testament reading, and I do the wisdom uh, passages in the scripture, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Solomon. I, I do that and then I go back and go through those wisdoms again while I'm doing Old Testament, New Testament. So my personal Bible study is a little bit different than, than uh, that trifold I gave you, but it's just what I'm doing over the last couple of years. And so I was reading in Psalm 81. Here's what it says. It says, those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him and their time of punishment would be forever. And I was thinking about what we were going to study and about the integrity of the ministry and conscience and all of that kind of stuff and doing one thing on the outside and saying one thing to somebody and then going and living some other way. We see that happen in ministry a lot, right? And we see it, it pops up in the news because the news loves that stuff. Oh, it was all a fake anyway, right? I mean, he was, he was saying one thing to his congregation and then living a, uh, this other way, right? And so the whole thing's meaningless and there's no transformation in Christ and, and Christianity is a fraud, right? So we see that all the time. And Psalm 81 verse 15 says, those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him. So if you're, doing, if you're saying one thing and doing another, you really what? You hate the Lord. That's pretty stark, isn't it? I mean, let that sink in. If you're saying one thing and doing another, pretending obedience, and that could be, you know, saying one thing, doing something else, could mean acting one way in front of one group and another way in front of a different group, right? Um, it's the ability to say the right words at the right time, but it's not how you live. See, that, that could be just coming to church and saying the churchy things, so people think that you're part of the group, but you, you live a certain way. You say something else completely when you're gone. See, it can be any of those, those options. Pretending obedience indicates what? Did you really hate the Lord? And, and it's just kind of confirmed in my mind that we should take a moment and look at some illustrations of good conscience and having confidence before the Lord that we're doing what we should be doing. And some of the illustrations of the seriousness of messing that up are going to come up too. And, and we'll just call that habits that will lead to a faulty conscience. So the message title, of course, is confidence and conscience. But if you want to have some habits that you're going to find out will lead to a faulty conscience, I'm going to give you a few of these just as a stopover, and then we'll finish up. Well, Jesus addressed this back in Matthew 23 in what was really a scorching rebuke of, of the spiritual leaders of his time, the scribes and Pharisees. Now, why are the scribes and Pharisees included in the New Testament? Well, very simply, so you'll know how not to act. I mean, they could have easily been excluded. They only added negative stuff to it, right? With the exception of very few, Nicodemus and a few others, that came and actually believed and then had to be encouraged by Christ to be bold about their belief. But the bottom line, you see scribes and Pharisees in the New Testament, so you'll know how not to act. So however they act, make sure you don't do that and you'll be on a good track, okay? But Jesus is rebuking them and it's really rough and he basically 
does is he reveals their hypocrisy. He describes them as leaders with no integrity. And, and uh, they wouldn't be able to say with Paul in 2 Corinthians one twelve, you know, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. They couldn't say that, that in holiness and godly sincerity and not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world, especially towards you. They couldn't say that. They couldn't say 2 Corinthians 5.11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope we're made manifest also in your conscience. They couldn't say that and have it come out positively, see? There's no hope that the people they ministered to could be proud of them. It was a mess. And Jesus just came and just revealed the mess. In fact, at the end of verse 3, Matthew 23, he says of the scribes and Pharisees, verse 23, 1 through 3, he says this. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. So they put themselves in a place of authority. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds. In other words, they're saying one thing and what? Doing something completely different. They're telling, they're speaking the truth of the word of God. But, and he says, so do what they say. They're in the seat of Moses. They're in the seat of authority, spiritual authority. Do what the word of God says, what they're telling you to do. But don't do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So they're in the seat of authority. So what they tell you from the word of God, go ahead and do it. Jesus says, but don't do what they do. They tell you to do things, but they don't do them. Beloved, here's the thing. Here's, here's how to lead, uh, get to a point where you have a faulty conscience. Teaching people things they should do, but not doing them yourself is a habit that will betray your conscience and take away the confidence you could have for the future. If you're telling them one thing, for people to do one thing, and you're not doing it, okay? And so that's always the struggle for a minister, isn't it? You've you got to preach to yourself before you bring it to the other pe- to people. It's the struggle for a teacher. You should understand it and be applying these. And you're not going to do it perfectly with, with, with the, the body that we have, but that's your desire, right? And you, you want to continually be uh, reformed and be made, sanctified by the Word of God so that you begin to model what you're teaching. And so... You want to have a faulty conscience, you want it to betray you, you want to have no confidence for the future, then tell people to do things they should do and don't do them yourself, okay? That'll lead to a mess. Saying things but not doing them is a lack of integrity. It's, it's being divided. It's having one set of ethics by which you live and another by which you speak. And it should be just obvious, but that's a big no-no. Next one, Matthew 23, 5. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men... For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. In other words, this is precisely what we saw with Paul just a little bit ago, right? Uh, it's making sure everybody thinks you're spiritual. If you're concerned about whether people think you're spiritual or not, you'll be successful. They'll think you're spiritual. But you won't really be, okay? It has an appearance of spirituality, and that's what they did. And so here's the second one. Here's a habit that will lead to, uh, to betray your conscience and, and no confidence for the future. Doing things for the purpose of praise of people or... That people will know that you did them betrays your conscience. So you're doing it so people will know you did it. Okay? So Jesus' whole point when he's teaching people to pray, right? He says when you're praying, don't stand up in front of everybody and use big words and repeat your phrases over and over again. God knows what you need before you even ask. Besides, you know, you're just betraying that you want to be spiritual and look spiritual, and you will. But God's not hearing the prayer, and it's not effective. Go in your closet, pray, where nobody can see. And so here's the deal. You do it for the purpose of praise of people, that people will know that you did that, and that's why you're doing it. That's going to betray your conscience. It's going to undermine your integrity and take away your confidence you could have for the future. Jesus continued his diatribe against this version of ministry. We won't take all in all of it because we could just spend the whole time with it. But he says in Matthew 23, verse 25, he says this. He says, woe to you, 
Man, when Jesus says woe to somebody, that's, that, you should be sitting up and taking notice, right? Man, you don't want Jesus to say woe to you. I mean, if he's concerned about your future, you should be concerned about your future, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. So thirdly, if you, if you want to have a conscience that betrays you at the end, you want to have no confidence and undermine your integrity, not taking care of those. Do you remember when we talked about this hidden things that lead to shame? Remember we looked at that when we first started this passage? Hidden things that lead to shame. So you're not taking care of those hidden things that you don't want anybody to know about. You're not keeping, you're not keeping a short sin list. That's going to betray your conscience. It's going to undermine your integrity and take away the confidence you could have for the future. It's not, it's, it's not that you don't sin, okay? Again, I'm saying it's not that as a teacher, as a counselor or whatever, that you're not going to have sin in your life. What I'm saying is you have to respond to that motivation to purge yourself of those things. It's a constant battle. Otherwise, what would be, if it wasn't going to be a constant battle, then Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about coming to the table and making sure you're not sharing the needs of those crucified Christ, you would just take care of it once and for all and you'd be good. But if you want that communion with Christ, and as often as you do it, declares death till he comes again, what has to happen? There has to be asking of the right questions privately, right? 2 Corinthians 4.2, remember, here's, here it is. Paul says, but we have renounced. That's a continual renouncing of things hidden because of shame. Right? This is stuff you don't want anybody to know about. You hope nobody ever sees. Guess what? Everybody has that stuff. You hope nobody finds out about it. You hope nobody sees it. It'd be super embarrassing and shameful if they did. It's all there. Why? Because it's, it's, it's found a, a beachhead in this, in this body that's not glorified yet. It had, the flesh has appetites, and you're at battle with it all the time. So we have renounced hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. So there's some stuff that goes on, self-talk, to be crafty and, and things that don't honor the Lord. Adulterating the word of God, shortchanging people, you know, soft-selling, all the things we just got through telling. We don't want to do that. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Again, the exact same thing, right? A good conscience based on integrity, based on being informed by the word of God and doing what you should be doing and, and for the motivation you should be doing it for. See? And Jesus is right on track, you know, that people shouldn't emulate these guys, that he ends this rebuke at Matthew 23, verse 33. He says this, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And isn't that precisely what we just read out of Psalms? Those who hate the Lord feign obedience to him. Pretend like you're going to do what he wants you to do, but you're really not. Put you in the same case. So this is an astounding rebuke. And beloved, this is... This is not the kind of company we want to find ourselves in. But quite frankly, this is how ministry is done a lot of times. Saying one thing, doing another, you know. You do it for the purpose of the praise of people that somebody will know that you did it, right? Teaching people to do one thing but not doing them yourselves. Not taking care of the hidden things, the short, keeping a short sin list. Kind of making yourself pure, going before the Lord, saying, Lord, you know, what do your people need today? And I want to be able to give that to them and I want to be able to do that with a clear conscience so... See if there be any wicked way in me, right? I mean, this should be the pattern of your prayer, beloved. This is not, this is not new stuff. This is what every believer do, does. This is the interaction we have with the Lord. 
a very dynamic interaction. If you read the word, there's this dynamic action going on of, Lord, this is not me right now. Lord, thank you for doing that in my life. I'm so grateful for that. Thank you for the forgiveness that's available. And Lord, reveal to me where I've camouflaged things and, and I'm just letting them stay. And I'm, my reactions and my thoughts and all that, they don't honor you. See, this is how the word transforms you into an image of Christ. Very interactive. Jesus says, listen, you know, talks to the spiritual leaders of his time. You're serpents. You're a brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? And that, I mean, that's not the, I mean, that's harsh. And he said a lot of other harsh things too. You load people up with a load and you don't lift a finger to help them carry it. And you don't carry it yourself. I mean, wow. I mean, it's just, it repeats some of the things we've said, but it's just over and over again. That's not how you want to do ministry. It's astonishing. So, um, and there's a few more places we can see how significant this matter of integrity and good conscience really is. And, and this isn't God condemning the hypocrite, but instead God promising to bless the man of integrity. And in the context of Solomon, David's son and king of Israel, I want to give you some good ones here. This is so great. You kind of see what's going on with this. And Solomon, of course, at the beginning of his life, started out well. And what happened at the end? He had some troubles and some stumbles and difficulties, right? But I love this. First Kings chapter 9, verse 1, he says, it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house. So everything David had wanted to do, he let Solomon do because David was a man of war, remember? And he said, hey, go ahead and collect the things you'll need for uh, what you want to do. But your, your son will do it because he's not going to be a man of war. And so uh, he's built all that. He's built the house of the Lord. He built the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do. So everything that was in his mind, he built and, and he established this wonderful kingdom, a kingdom that has yet to be replicated in all the kingdoms of the world from before all the way through till now that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me, and I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances. Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. Just as I promised to your father David saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. If you'll walk before me as your father David walked, what? In integrity of heart and uprightness. What's that? That's a good conscience, right? Was David sinless? No. Early part of David's life, he was struggling. Solomon, the early part of his life, he was, hitting his, he was hitting his stride, right? David, at the early part of his life, not so much. But as he got older, what happened? He began to understand. And so the Lord, in his graciousness, remembers that part, right? He doesn't say at the end of this to say what, you know, Solomon wasn't so great at the end. That's what we say, right? We get to see both sides, which is wonderful the Bible. We, not everybody comes out smelling like a rose. And we understand that very well. We relate to that, don't we? So God says, if you'll maintain a life of integrity, I'll bless you. And on the other hand, he says, starting verse 6, if, if you're in spiritual leadership and don't keep a good conscience informed by the word of God, if you, keep, you don't keep good integrity, I'll pronounce a curse on you. And that, that's what comes next. But this section right here says, listen, you know, this is a blessing of a good conscience, right? It was still a significant issue in the Old Testament. God was still concerned about it. He was concerned that it was informed correctly and that it, and you responded to it correctly and you consulted it. It's a significant issue, issue of good conscience, this issue of integrity as it relates to ministry. And Paul was clear. He wasn't sinless, but he dealt with his sin in a biblical manner. He renounced the things hidden because of shame. He continually put to death the deeds of the flesh, just using another passage, right? 
there's another great example of good conscience and integrity, maybe the finest example, and it's found in the book of Job. And I want to take a moment of the time because we're just about out, but I think we can squeeze it in the time we have left and, and read about one of the godliest men on earth perhaps at that time, perhaps the godliest man uh, who has lived. But in Job chapter 1, verse 1, you're probably thinking, I don't want to be Job. Or in the sum of Job's life, perhaps that's a difficult thing to choose, but Job didn't choose it either, did he? I'm sure if Job could have had the choice, hey, do you want me to take away all your, all your, all your, your family and everything that you've ever earned and your fortune and also take all your health away? We'd all probably say no, including Job, right? But I, I, I want to point this out to you because it makes a point at the end I think is important. You know, it's not subjective. I can respond with a good conscience and integrity kind of depending on what my background is, okay? And so that's where we're going to go with this. But listen to Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. This is what it says, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now, that's, that's a wonderful thing for God to say about someone, right? Wouldn't you like him to say about you privately? Um, she was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He was blameless and upright, and he feared me and turned away from evil. I mean, if you have to sum up stuff that kind of uh, shows that you have a relationship with Christ, that's some of it, wouldn't you think? And we aspire to that. Obviously, Job had a clear conscience. And according to the passage, Satan came to God, and Satan had this scheme. Satan wanted to show that he could destroy the faith of someone, and so God says, you have my permission, and Job selected to prove a heavenly point. So Job's not involved in this. He didn't sin. He didn't bring this on himself by you know, this wasn't part of the frailty of the fresh flesh where he had some sickness. It wasn't because he sinned and God was correcting him. It's just the Lord's making a heavenly point. Job doesn't know what's going on. It's just going to happen, okay? And it looks like natural disasters, and it looks like, you know, criminals coming and killing everybody, whatever, but God's proving a heavenly point, and Job is the subject of that point. And I think we could take away really a wonderful thought from this scenario, though, as we get into it. During difficult times, hard things, we know that God uses those things to develop endurance and proven character and hope, right? We, we understand that. We, we understand apart from any of the cause of it, whether it's, it's our own sinfulness and the Lord chastens us, whether it's just the frailty of our body and we have something going on and we have to deal with it, whatever it is, we know that we can rejoice. We've seen this over and over again because the Lord has his, his uh, things he wants to accomplish in us regardless of what it is, okay? So we can take great hope in that. But it's also possible that God could have counted you worthy to prove a heavenly point or point someone to himself. And that's the reason why this issue is coming up in your own life. And what an honor and a joy it will be someday, someday, because you won't maybe even know right now, someday what a joy and honor it will be to find out about all of that, that the Lord allowed some certain thing that you just really hated and you had to be brought into subjection to his will but you come to find out later that the Lord used this in a very powerful way for someone. See? And what a joy that will be. But back to the story. God says you can take Job's possessions, and later we're going to see in chapter 2, God tells Satan that he can take his health, but you kill him and, and even send him some terrible counselors. And we don't see the Lord say, you know, you can send some terrible counselors, but we know that the counselors were part of the, the trial, okay, because they're terrible. I mean, when you read through the book of Job, you realize they say things that weren't true, and they... they, they uh, they attack Job, and they say, just confess that you've sinned, and all that stuff, and we, well, we go back to Job 1.1, here's Job, a man blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's, that's the Lord's evaluation. His counselors were terrible, so he had all these difficult things come, and some terrible counselors, 
And uh, so talk about some discouraging guys. Well, wow, these guys are terrible. So Satan did what he was allowed to do. He lost his fortune. Job lost his possessions. Members of his family were killed. Horrible things happened. Seemingly every earthly thing. And then we come to Job chapter 2, verse 1, and we see this. It says, um, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So the angels, the holy angels are coming, and Satan has access still to heaven, even now, right? And so he comes up before the Lord, and um, verse 2 says, The Lord said to Satan, Where come from? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now, just as a review, um, uh, what's he roaming about doing? I think you know this, right? He's seeking someone to devour in their sin he's still about that so these little things you allow in your life you know that could be difficult uh, realize that satan's roaming around seeking to devour somebody in their sin and so uh and he comes to steal and kill and destroy and all of that so that's his mos okay he's still he's still about that now uh kind of taking this on and so verse three says then the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job so at this point, Job has lost all his possessions and his, and his family, uh, for there's no one, here's what he says, listen, for there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds on to his integrity. So at this point, the Lord, uh, uh, Satan has taken away, allowing Satan to take away, the Lord's allowed Satan to take away his family and his fortune. And he says, uh, have you considered Job? You know, he still holds on to his integrity. He's still an upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And his conscience is clear, even after all this happened. See? So we get a, we get a God's evaluation of Job's conscience, which no one else can see but God. And his integrity is intact. What he knows about God is what he lives. See? And what he says about God is reflected in his worldview. So he's not saying one thing and doing another. He's not saying one thing and feeling something else. He, it's lined up. See? And then Satan says, hey, he still has his health. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so obviously that's something he'd like to take away. And so then he makes a statement that is as true today as it was 4,000 years ago. All that a man has, he'll give for his life, right? That's, that's the way it is still, right? That's why healthcare is so, so expensive. Everything a man has, he'll give for his life. Insurance companies know that. And so, you know, wonder why your premium's so large. There you go. And so the Lord said to Satan... Behold, he's in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So unimaginable horrors came into this man's life, and he never let go of his integrity. Never. And verse 9, even his wife says to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God and guy? Everybody was trying to attack his integrity, starting with his own wife. He wouldn't budge. Then over in chapter 27 of Job, we find the words of Job himself, and he says this. He says, then Job continued his discourse. He's talking with the Lord. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who's embittered my soul. In other words, my life is rough. I have a difficult time 
doing the things I'm going to do. And when I look forward to tomorrow, it's going to be just as bad as today. I understand this. He's not pretending that his difficulties are fun. He's not saying that they are minimal. I'm having a very difficult time. I've lost my family. I've lost my fortune. I've lost my health. My life is bitter. It's a bitter dreg. And that's the truth. And many of you have been there. Life is bitter. The things that happened to you were horrible. And what people did to you were very bad. Not minimizing any of that. Okay? Not minimizing any of that. For as long as life is in me, and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. I'm not going to say things that are not true. I'm not going to be unjust. Far be it from me that I should declare you right. So he's talking to his counselor. I'm not going to say everything that you said is right. I'm not switching. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast to my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Even though my days are bitter, even though the Lord has given me a bitter cup to drink, even though no matter which direction I look, there is no relief, even though all the stuff that's happened to me is beyond my comprehension, I don't understand what's going on, and he wouldn't, would he, because this was proving a heavenly point. I think we should pull a confidence and conscience principle from that section right there, don't you? And here's what it is. Number five. It is absolutely possible to pass through the most difficult times you can imagine and stay on track and retain your integrity and finish your race with a clear conscience. It is entirely possible because at the level that we see with Job, none of us, none of us has come anywhere near that and we see Job passing through and holding on to his integrity and not sinning with his lips and not speaking false things, which is God's unjust and why God let this happen to me and oh, woe is me, right? And I'm a victim and all of that, right? So I can't possibly do any of this stuff. How could I possibly minister? I need to be ministered to, see? And forgetting all the things that the Lord has said about difficult times and how he brings us through and that pressing pressure uh, does things in us that the Lord wants to accomplish, see? So I think it's absolutely possible to pass through the most difficult times you could imagine. Stay on track, retain your integrity, and finish your race with a clear conscience. And all that time, pointing people to a future day of judgment, which you already know is coming, and you've lived that way all your life, and you're going to live that way until you die. See? And that sounds a lot like Paul's life. And we'll see that a little later in this letter. Difficult times is no hindrance to a confident future if we understand the whole process. See, And sometimes, honestly, people take away as much as they benefit. Watching you pass through the pressing pressure as they do from your faithful teaching. It might be the difficult time you went through that was just as meaningful to them and just as helpful and they looked forward to that future day and changed the way they lived because of it as your teaching was. See. The last illustration we'll look at today is Psalm 78. I just read it a few days ago. Again, it's, it's a long psalm about King David whose life honestly didn't start out that great. Not a lot of integrity, but from the middle on out, he began to walk in that way. And verse 70, Asaph is the writer of this, of this and we're going to finish up with this. Asaph's the writer, and he, is, uh, he talks about the Lord, and it says he also chose David his servant. And Psalm 78, verse 70 says this. He says, he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, 
From the care of ewes and suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So, so God chose, Asaph says, God chose David for a very important task, right? Um, and then verse 72, perhaps the single greatest commentary on the life of any ministry leader, spiritual leader, anybody who does ministry to other people, this wonderful statement in verse 72, it says, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's a great statement on leadership. He shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them with his skillful hand. The Lord didn't recount all the failures of David, right? Asaph wasn't saying he also made a big boo-boo with Bathsheba, right? He acted like he was like like he was crazy sometimes to keep himself from being taken captive, and he, he lied to people and whatever. doesn't say any of that, does it? Because the pattern of David's life was what? A life of integrity. He desired to do and live in such a way, and even if he had to have Nathan bring him back to where he needed to be, he was willing. He didn't deny it. He was willing to go and lay before the Lord and take whatever chastening the Lord had given him, and his integrity was intact. See, And so it says of him, so he went from shepherding lambs to shepherding Jacob, his people, and he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. And that's a great... Statement of leadership. Skill and integrity. Shepherding God's people. All of the possible duties certainly requires integrity. That little Sunday school class, the counseling you do, the small group, uh, the whatever it is before the congregation, um, the children's church. Preach the truth. That demands that you live one truth. See. Call other people to follow the truth demands that you obey the truth. And that alone makes a ministry that is what it ought to be. And that makes it God-honoring and Christ-exalting and Holy Spirit-empowered. And it gives you the sense of why Paul mentions this so many times. A good conscience, ministry that is made manifest before the Lord, and he approves of it and keeps track of it. And Paul knew that the people of God should expect to be ministered to by men of integrity and women of integrity. And he knew that the church needed to be ministered to by men who pointed them to the final day of judgment and said, listen, this is coming. Live in such a way that you're going to have something left over after that fire and you'll be able to present that before the Lord and have the honor that is due to Christ and you'll be able to say the Lord did this in me. You had the same resources everybody else had. End up with plenty of leftover. Integrity in spiritual leaders, ministers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, whatever your ministry is, it's the thing that motivated Paul. It's the crucial thing and a man without it is a hypocrite. And a whitewashed tomb. And that's not very good company. All that to say, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we're also made manifest to God. And I hope that we're made manifest also in your consciences. Paul says, even though I have a clear conscience before God, and he's my witness, I'm doing all of this so that someday you'll understand how important it is. And may the Lord allow that day to come well before the day in which we'll all stand before him. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for uh, how powerful it is for us. In spite of the inefficiency and inability of the speaker, you still have power in your word. And by your Holy Spirit, you make it resonate in our own hearts. We know that it's true. Holy Spirit makes it clear to us. We understand 
even in the private of our own thoughts, what we need to do, and Lord, I pray all of us will respond. To live in such a way that we're pointing people towards uh, the beloved kingdom, living a kingdom life, storing up treasure that doesn't fade away, building on a foundation of Christ who is so worthy, those things which will last the test. And even if it's starting now, help us not fail to respond. If we haven't been serving, if we haven't been witnessing, if we haven't been doing the things that gain crowns, haven't had correct thoughts, motives, been harboring things in our heart, sinful things we're not repenting and getting rid of. Lord, I pray to work through all that with us right now. May us make commitments, and then, as Scripture says over and over, pay our vows to you. What we say we're going to do, Lord, empower us to do and help us to follow through a volitional response to a clear teaching that has so much benefit at the end. Thank you for our time as we prayed before the band began to practice, time to be together, a time to be edified and encouraged amongst ourselves, time to bless, to meet needs. Thank you for all that. Thank you for the flock that's here and for the flock that's traveling, and I pray that you'll bless them and encourage them, recharge them. For those who leave soon for vacation, that you might uh, bring great benefit to the time away, time that they spend still ministering, time they spend still in your word, still giving, doing all the things that we're supposed to do, but Lord, time where you can recharge them and refresh them with family and all these blessings that come from your hand. If you're good that way, every good and perfect gift comes from you. You don't change. It's always been that way. So if we praise you for that, we praise you for our time together, we praise you for our giving, for the time in prayer, for the singing time, uh, all these things your flocks have been doing since the first century, getting together, reading your word, applying what it says, going out and living that way, living such a life that you may be magnified. And so, Lord, it's all in, in Jesus' name we pray all of this. It's for him we serve, him we long to see. We pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.